Welcome to a short white coat syndrome, a PA student podcast. This episode, I'm here with my co-host Brett Barnes, and uh, we're just going to be talking a little bit with a, a special guest of ours today. His name is uh, Professor Stan- Sandor, or also goes by Peter Sandor, and he is a PA in the ICU. And we're just going to have a little conversation with him about the clinical year. Uh, as always, this podcast is for people who are current PAs that are interested in the profession as well as pre-PAs and PA students who want to know a little bit more about the profession and what, what all it entails. So with that, let's just get started. It's Brett here. Nice to have everyone listening in. But we we're hoping to talk a little bit about our clinical rotations uh, and get Peter's kind of perspective on uh, students and how to uh, address it. Uh, so for everyone uh, to know... David and I are on our clinical uh, rotations right now. We're exactly halfway through, um, almost to the date, actually, of finishing mm-hmm. the rest of our clinicals. Wow. Uh, but the way Quinnipiac works is, and m- most other PA programs, is you have seven core rotations in surgery, emergency medicine, pediatrics, internal medicine, psychiatry, uh, OBGYN, and family medicine. Uh, and then uh, Quinnipiac gives us two electives. Uh, so that's where Dave and I are right now. Uh, and at the end of each six weeks, you have an EOR. You might do uh, case report presentations, journal clubs, uh, and that's pretty much kind of a, a broad overview of our clinical year. So, Dave, tell me uh, what's what's been the best part of clinical year for you so far? Oh my goodness, I I think it's actually talking to people. Um, you know, finally getting to see what you're learning in practice is is a nice and rewarding moment to to kind of see that hard work you put in during your didactic year kind of pay off a little bit but also to just uh, be able to experience and see uh, for, for firsthand what what a presentation looks like with uh, a patient who has a heart attack or a patient who has a broken arm simply uh, just being able to walk through that and be like wow I actually know what I'm kind of doing with this scenario or I've seen this now I, I can kind of understand and comprehend a little bit about what's going on I might not know 100% about what's going on in every situation but I think it's really been an exciting moment for me to be able to start to put together things that we were we were learning in our past and being able to use it and see it in, in real form and if anything it's kind of made me more of a, a confident uh, confident in my abilities uh, because didactic gear I think prepares you well for you know knowing the knowledge but i think as you progress through your clinical year you become more confident in who you are as a provider and even though i'm nowhere near a a full pa yet i i think it my confidence has slowly been growing and and helping me be more uh, confident presenting to attendings as well as also educating my patients about their conditions so i think that's all really cool stuff to to go through and experience yeah i I absolutely agree with you it's definitely interacting with patients after a year of you know, not doing anything clinically to hop back in there and get that experience. It's, it's awesome every day. I I love it. Yeah. Uh, But without further ado, uh, let's dive right into the clinical year uh, by introducing our guest. Uh, I'm going to try to do my best here uh, without getting too winded. Uh, Peter has an extensive uh, kind of rap sheet that uh, I may get winded going through. (laughs) Take a deep breath. He was a respiratory therapist. (laughs) Let's leave it at that. (laughs) So Mr. Peter Sandor is primarily a PA working in the surgical critical care unit at St. Francis Hospital in Hartford, Connecticut. But he wears many different hats. Uh, He's a co-CEO and owner of Clearview Simulation, uh, as well as a clinical adjunct professor at Quinnipiac University PA program. 
Peter's first initiation into medicine was at the early age of 16 when he became an EMT. Uh, from there, after graduating high school, he obtained his bachelor's of science in respiratory care, became a certified respiratory therapist, uh, where he graduated from uh, Quinnipiac University in 1997 uh, and worked as a respiratory therapist until deciding to continue his education. Uh, he then returned to Quinnipiac to receive his master's degree uh, as a PA in 2001. After completing the program, he joined the staff in the surgical ICU at St. Francis, uh, but that wasn't the last degree that he would collect from Quinnipiac. Uh, in 2019, he returned to obtain his third and maybe final degree uh, in the form of a uh, master's in uh, business uh, degree. In 2005, he joined the faculty as a part-time clinical adjunct, uh, but his dedication to the program exceeds the status of part-time in that he guest lectures, advises clinical students, conducts journal clubs, and many other activities behind the scenes. Uh, he has made many publications ranging, ranging from percutaneous tracheostomy placement to nurses' perceptions uh, to advanced practice providers in the ICU setting. Also of note, he's a distinguished fellow of the AAPA and has, over, and has performed over 1,000 tracheostomy. Uh, and also, congratulations on being named St. Francis Hospital's Surgical PA of the Year. All right. Peter Sandor. <laughs> wow, thank you very much. Uh, I must say it's an honor to be here, and uh, thank you for uh, this opportunity. Yeah, no, yeah. We, we love having you on here just for the conversation for sure. Yeah, happy you could be here. Um, Brett, I'm just going to save you the breath here and just get us a little a little started here with thank our, you. our I'm, first I'm, I'm our wheezing first, over here. <laughs> first, first question. So in our correspondence with you prior to, to this episode, actually, you had a very interesting story about getting into medicine. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what intrigued you about medicine? What got you into it? Uh, yeah, it actually is pretty good. Um, I had no idea when I, what I wanted to do in high school. Um, my parents are immigrants from Hungary. I was first-generation American. They're just happy that I'm in America attending high school. I'm going to graduate high school. Uh, they, my father loves soccer. They're happy that uh, I was playing soccer. And uh, my father's an engineer, so they thought that maybe I should become an engineer, but I really didn't like math, so that wasn't working out. And it just random chance in the newspaper there was a – advertisement for a CPR course at the local first aid squad. And uh, I, I decided to take it. My mom was a little scratching her head as to why I wanted to take a CPR course, but I thought it was a good idea for some reason. And uh, I took the course. The uh, course instructor actually uh, encouraged me after the, the course to, um, to join the first aid squad as a youth member. And my perception of the first aid squad or the volunteer ambulance squad was a bunch of old men hanging out at the building <laughs> and uh, I didn't think I'd fit in very well um, but after the my first day there I uh, just fell in love and I couldn't look for I look forward to going every week I look forward to uh, hanging out with my crew um, going going on calls and um, and taking my EMT class uh, you know it's ironic because um, uh, at the time I uh, hated blood, and I would pass out at the sight of needles. So, but I still, I uh, still went. <laughs> you had to get over that pretty yeah. quickly, then, right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it actually took me a while. It's, it's, and for those people who, uh, who say I want to be in healthcare, but I'm afraid of blood and afraid of needles, that shouldn't hold you back because uh, it, it's something you'll get over rather quickly. That's awesome. Sounds like yeah. it's very serendipitous how how you kind of ended up in all of this. Yeah, and uh, my crew chief, even then I like medicine, uh, my crew chief was a uh, respiratory therapist, and he was sort of like my mentor, helped guide me, and that's how I ended up choosing respiratory therapy, because again, I had no exposure to the medical profession, and 
my guidance counselor wanted me to be a mechanic because I like to fix things and diagnose things. Uh, so it's kind of in line with that, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I kind of got to ask uh, just to derail things a little bit, but not too much. Um, so for me, my first real exposure with respiratory therapy, I, I worked as a nursing assistant in the hospital. So they would always be there early in the morning doing breathing treatments. And I, I honestly thought that was mostly what their job was and that was it. But I have shortly uh, realized or so- soon after realized that their job carries a lot and you, you do a lot as a respiratory therapist. Do you want to like just tell us a little bit about what your job was like as, as a respiratory therapist? What did, you, what did you do exactly? Yeah, so I think that's everyone's first exposure is uh, breathing treatments and nebulizers <laughs> yeah. and stuff like that. Um, <laughs> But a respiratory therapist is really, is really an expert in the cardiopulmonary science uh, uh, part. And, you know, um, respiratory therapists work mainly in the intensive care unit um, managing uh, the ventilators. So mm-hmm. anyone who's on life support, those ventilators are managed by respiratory therapists. They also work uh, outpatient pulmonary function tests, sleep studies, um, transport, emergency transport, like emergency uh, helicopters and things like that. So it, it really, your your opportunities are, are pretty broad. Um, and so I, and I loved it, to be honest with you. I thought it was a great, great job. I just had a drive and a desire to do more. And, and when I started working clinically, I didn't know what a PA was either. So when I started working clinically, I, I actually take a step back, the PA program at Quinnipiac started when I was an undergrad here. And at that time, I was still living in New Jersey, and PAs uh, weren't licensed to practice in New Jersey. So oh, I had that was like, before the Bill Kolhap era then. Yeah, yeah. for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yep. um, so uh, I, my exposure was very little until I uh, started working in the hospital as a respiratory therapist, and then I saw uh, what exactly a PA did. And, and that's when I thought, you know what, this is, would be a great transition to the PA profession. But I just wasn't ready yet, so I became a traveler. Um, and I went back to New Jersey, worked there for a little bit, and then ended up in West Palm Beach and swore when I graduated from BA school I'd go back there. And that was 20 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> we see how it played out. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, that's awesome to hear. Um, diving a little bit more into the clinical year and kind of your past experiences, uh, what were clinical rotations like for you as a student? Uh, so I would say that it's probably the same. In fact, a lot of our rotations that, that a lot of the rotations that I took are the same rotations that students are taking today. Like, mm. uh, my first rotation was at Bridgeport Hospital. And uh, it was, I, I never want to work in an emergency room because of that experience. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was a great experience. I mean, six weeks in a, you know, trauma center, you're, you see a wide variety of patients, wide variety of diseases. It was just a lot. Um, they get a free free um, lunch card so you can get free lunch at the cafeteria I never went once so I just showed up in the morning and you're just it's like a you know drinking from a fire hydrant just one patient coming in another one coming in another one coming in it just doesn't stop and uh, I'd rather see a small amount of patients with complex medical problems than see 30 patients um, and try to organize myself because I would I just not good at that yeah, but yeah. So is that like, because I think when some people look at it, you know, you may hear emergency medicine and they may hear critical care medicine and they might think it's very similar. So y- you don't think there's there's a whole lot of uh, overlap? I think I think in critical care, I'm, I'm really, it's, it's, I'm so lucky because I don't have to deal with the patients who aren't sick. 
you only see the cream of the crop. And in my case, it's like the sickest, most complex patients. And you have time to spend with them to figure out what mm. the diagnosis is and to resuscitate them and manage them. And you really are, as a seasoned uh, you know, provider in the ICU, you're uh, a valuable resource to the hospital. I mean, you can go, they call me to the floor to evaluate patients on the floor, they call me to the ED to evaluate patients in the ED. I mean, you're, you're getting dragged all over the hospital as like someone who can be a resource to anyone who's sick. <laughs> yeah, so that's it, fair, yeah. yeah. Yeah, like do you, uh, this is kind of a, a question that kind of popped into my head a little bit though. Like that seems like a hard rotation to just be your first one right out of didactic right into is like the emergency department. Do you think there's a particular rotation that would be like the hardest one to start out with versus like the one that you think would be the nicest to like transition from didactic into? I think the the, the easiest one, not because it's easy, but because you're probably the most prepared for is like primary care. Yeah. Um, it's not easy by any means, but it's just the entire didactic year prepares you for being, uh, and the whole PA program essentially prepares you to be a primary care provider. So, I mean, you do do surgery and emergency medicine and stuff, but uh, mm-hmm. really is the, the, f- the foundation is really in primary care. Yeah. But in, in general, I said, I, I would say that was my first rotation, but I really loved each and every one of my rotations. Um, for different reasons, and some I liked and loved more than others, but I think the opportunity to to experience that is like tremendous. I mean, these patients, they trust you. I'm a student with limited experience, and then they trust me to examine them. Uh, it's like th- th- to have that th- that privilege is just uh, amazing, and uh, and for patients to trust you at their most vulnerable time is like it's pretty neat. Oh my goodness! Yeah, I I won't forget uh, during my emergency rotation placing an IV on this one guy. Uh, I, I I still have a lot to work on with that, but, <laughs> but I was placing this IV on this guy. This nurse was so kind and trying to talk me through it. And this guy totally knew I was a student right from the get-go, but he was like, cool about it. He's like, it's okay, man. You got to learn. You got to do this. And some patients are really great about that, which I came to as a shock to me because initially I thought nobody was going to be receptive to having a student at all ever want to do anything on you. And sometimes that's the case, but there's a lot more people that were willing to have a student work work with them than, than I expected to. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. It's an experience that I think as students, you know, we might not think a, a lot about, but you know, someone's willingness to let us learn from them is something that, you know, we should probably keep in the back of our heads at all times. Cause it's, it is such a, you know, humbling experience and, and one to really keep with you as you progress through your career. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you, um, kind of talking a little bit more too about our rotations, uh, there's some elect, like, obviously, you know, you get some electives. What did you end up doing your, did you do yours in critical care? Did you do it in something else? What did you? Yeah. So the last thing I wanted to do is go into critical care, <laughs> considering <laughs> I was a respiratory therapist working yeah. in an ICU. I wanted to go down a different path. I really love my surgery rotation. Um, and so I did an elective in plastic surgery to, and I did it with a private surgeon. So we we're in the office during the day and I was like his right hand man. We operated together, uh, we were in the office together, and uh, he actually offered me, wrote me a letter of recommendation, sent it to the program, and wanted to hire me before we even graduated, and I said, I think this is this is what I want to do. And then um, two people reached out to me. One was a cardiac surgery at Hartford Hospital, and the other one was critical care at St. Francis, and I, that's because I did a rotation at St. Francis in the surgical ICU. Uh, and so I ended up... Uh, 
taking the easy road and uh, went with critical care. Because <laughs> the easy road. Yeah. Because yeah. I felt comfortable in that I've environment. nine to five, Monday through Friday, critical <laughs> care. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah. So, and, and just to expand on that, like, yeah. you think, like, all right, where should I do my elective rotations, right? Mm-hmm. So some people think, well, I want to do critical care, so why don't I do, like, an infectious disease, maybe a pulmonary elective, maybe a, a nephrology elective, because that's going to prepare me to be a good critical care PA, but... In reality, it's not going to work well that way if you want to get a job in critical care. Because when you go for your road to, your your uh, your interview, they're going to say, "So tell me, what exposure have you had to critical care? You didn't do any electives in critical care. Uh, what makes you think that you want to do it if you have no exposure to it?" And so, in terms of getting a job with no experience and not doing a rotation in critical care, it makes it a lot more difficult. So, one, it helps you to network. And two, it gives you an exposure. And you could say, well, I spent four weeks or six weeks or whatnot in critical care, and I saw and experienced what a critical care provider does, and it's, I really fell in love with it, and that's what I want to do. So it gives you an upper hand when you go for your interview. Do you also think that kind of baptism by fire kind of motto helps at all in, in terms of learning it all? Or? Uh, what do you mean in terms of, like, as a student doing critical care? Yeah, getting thrown into it, you know, trying to learn critical care from the ICU rather than taking parts and pieces from various specialties to kind of offset it. Yeah, I think in in my – so when I started in the ICU, it was uh, was just three of us. Um, And I was a new grad, uh, Jim Lund, my best friend, and uh, pretty much we – have the same exact life. <laughs> We've done everything together. <laughs> My motivator, I guess. Uh, so it was the two of us and then uh, one other PA. And uh, we were able to grow the department now to like 11 PAs. And a majority of the PAs that we hire are all new grads. And so though in the beginning there was no uh, sort of no precedence, we sort of created the environment and the culture of APPs in the ICU. Uh, so it was really challenging in the beginning. And, uh, you know, we showed up at 5 in the morning instead of at 7 in the morning, and we stayed till 7 at night. We didn't leave at 5 at night. And then if they needed someone on the weekend, we'd come in anyway. It's not in our salary, but we did it. And so people learn to rely on you And so because you're always there. So when they rely on you, they're like, oh, we need more. We need more. <laughs> and so it really – and we were really dedicated to the – to critical care. So, uh, you know, we joined the national societies. Um, we did research, uh, we did education. And so, um, people relied on us more and more. Um, and so that, that's how we were able to expand the department to like 11, uh, providers, uh, uh, currently. Wow. That's awesome. It's really, uh, you know, blazing your own trail in a way. Yeah. So, uh, Talking a little bit more about kind of your experience as a a respiratory therapist, uh, how much do you think your, uh, you know, clinical experience before starting PA school helped you in your clinical year? Uh, How comfortable was it making that transition from respiratory therapist to PA student? So I I looked at the rest of the class. We had a lot of nurses, uh, paramedics, and then a respiratory therapist. Uh, I felt like I was not prepared at all. I was <laughs> sort of, I, I know the heart and the lungs, right? And uh, I knew very little about pharmacology, very little bit about anatomy, very little bit about the rest of the body. So I th- really thought I was like behind, and I was actually a little bit intimidated starting out. Uh, then I took my first exam, and I 
failed that, so I said, oh. <laughs> <laughs> maybe I'm not cut out for this. <laughs> um, but uh, I was just, I didn't think that I was, respiratory therapy prepared me well, but as I got into the, you know, further into the didact- didactic year, I realized that I could relate to a lot of things that were happening, um, even though I was sort of specialized. Now, having said that, I think everyone has something to offer in the didactic year, whether you're a paramedic, a respiratory therapist, rad tech, a dietitian, nurse, uh, um, everyone has something to offer, and every, it's it's a matter of working together to teach each other and supporting each other and in uh, getting through the program. That's a, that's actually a really great point. I I can think back to numerous amounts of times where somebody who might be an expert in ENT can teach me a little bit about why you do this or how you treat somebody with like a certain ENT type condition. Whereas like I had a probably a little bit of a stronger orthopedic background. So I was able to help people with that um, when they were confused about certain concepts with that. So it's definitely a very unique thing to see in PA school. It's like a a melting pot of different. Yeah, uh, for sure. (laughs) So um, it, when you were uh, like kind of talking a little bit too, you were, you had some published uh you you published some stuff about you know apps in uh in a critical care setting too uh what what exactly did those talk about for our listeners Hmm, a couple so uh one of um my first attendant my first so when i started in the icu there my the director of the icu he was new Uh, he was big into new young and really big into research and i knew nothing about research at the time and um, he said, why don't you guys collect data on doing these trachs that you guys are doing? And because no one else wanted to do them, and he was willing to have Jim and I just start doing the trachs in the ICU, and he would just support us. So uh, our complication rate was like zero. Uh, we took our time and, and did the procedures well. And so I said, all right, we'll you know, get the data sheet. We started collecting data on it. And next thing we know, he wrote up two posters for us to present. He did all the research. And he wrote our names on it as first authors and then said, wow, they got accepted. I want you guys to present this at the SCCM conference, Society of Critical Care Medicine. So it was at that time, I mean, that taught us the whole process, you know, gave us a taste of what the research process was like, and it gave us some motivation to continue to do research along the way. Um, so those those were basically our first uh, first research projects. and And then sort of looking at like how PAs function in the ICU is something that's not been researched before. Um, and so we wanted to see like, are we actually productive? Um, are we doing um, the right thing? Are we helpful to the critical care team? And so who better to assess that than the nurses who are there in the ICU all the time? And again, it's just a simple little, and I encourage everyone to do simple little research projects. Uh, we just surveyed the nurses on various topics, and they gave their opinion, uh, you know, anonymous opinions, and we presented data at CCM on another occasion. And then we did a, a few other projects along the way, but uh, they don't have to be, you know, randomized controlled trials. And get, you know, <laughs> you want to get published in the New England Journal. It's just answering questions, clinical questions that you might have that you come across during your career. And I think it's important, you know, that to have questions. You know, in the beginning, you're sort of, I guess, clueless. And as you start to grow and learn, you have a different perspective than me, who's been in the ICU for 20 years. So you're going to come up with these clinical questions. A lot of them, you could look at PubMed, Google, whatever you want to do to answer those questions. But in some ways, you're not even going to have answers. 
So you could say, well, wow, maybe we should look into this a little bit more. How could we create a simple research project to, to start it out and then and grow from there? So I encourage everyone to, to have that clinical um, curiosity. Yeah, yeah. I think being in this profession, you know, being in medicine, you have to have that kind of natural curiosity, right? And just like you said, it doesn't always have to be some big, grandiose project. It can be a you know, simple question that we just don't have the answer to yet. Yeah. Without a doubt. Um, this was actually a, a question that I, I was interested in because thinking about all of our various backgrounds, uh, you know, some people that come in as respiratory therapists, others from more of the nursing side, from EMS, um, were there things that you had to unlearn that you learned as a respiratory therapist to become a PA and to, to be a better functioning PA? Uh, I think sometimes I think back to my own experiences of, you know, oh, this was how we did it in EMS. This is, you know, how it should be. And that wasn't always the case as in, in my learning. And I, you know, there are some parts that I said, wow, maybe we were doing things wrong or maybe it was just the setting. But yeah, were there anything in particular that you had to switch up learning? Um, so, so I think in a way, if you have protocolized medicine, then you have to sort of dumb it down and make it straightforward. And, and never really dumb it down, but just simplify the process um, rather than thinking it through. And um, there are like some, something simple as uh, CPR. Like, yeah, we do CPR, layperson CPR, a little different than we do ACLS. So it, it's just simplifying it for, um, I guess, for to make it easy. Um, so. I wouldn't say there's anything in particular to, to forget. I, I mean, I think that, like, when I was on my clinical rotations, specifically in the ICU, um, you know, I do have a lot of experience with ventilators. And a majority of the patients that require an intensive care is because they require a ventilator. So with my experience in mechanical ventilation, um, I sort of had to keep my mouth shut a lot of times because uh, I am a student. And regardless of whether, and this, you know, this holds true for not just for the, my respiratory therapy background, but in general, like when you're on your rotations and you know the answer and someone else, maybe your preceptor says the wrong answer, it's okay. <laughs> you don't have to correct them, <laughs> right? If you, if you know more about a certain topic than your preceptor, don't tell them that. Don't make them look stupid. Make them look good. Make them look smart. Um, and, and it's not going to get you far by trying to correct your preceptors or thinking that you know more than they do. Um, you know, ask a lot of questions. I think if there was one one uh, point I could make is to add, ask questions continuously on your rotations because that shows that you have that curiosity, shows that you're engaged, shows that you want to learn. Uh, if you never ask a question, I can't really get a feel for who you are as a student, and I just feel like you, you don't really – you don't really care. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, actually, I think that that's a good transition to asking simply still, what, what makes a good preceptor? Like how, how has I, <coughs> as a student, can I know that this preceptor is somebody that is, is not only like obviously medically sound, but also just like somebody that is, is good at, at teaching and doing their job and, and training PAs. So I could be a good preceptor and I could be a bad preceptor <laughs> all <laughs> the same day. <laughs> Um, and it really depends on the student. Uh, you know, we get certain students who go home every night. They say they took care of a patient or we got an admission. They did the admission. They went home. 
without me asking, they read about it. They you know, maybe had that opened up more questions, so they read more about it. And then the following day, they come back in, and they're asking me questions about, hey, this is what we did yesterday, or why did we do it this way, or could we do it that way? And uh, like that student, I'm going to hold their hand, put them on them put them under my arm. I'm going to bring them with me everywhere. I'm going to show them everything. I'm going to give them opportunities. I'm going to invest a lot of time into them because I know that when I speak, they listen. And that's really important. At the same time, I may have a student who is brilliant. Maybe they, you know, aced all their exams in didactic year. So smart. But they just sit in the office on their phone. Maybe they're reading. Oh, I got, I'm going to read some journal articles because I want to read journal articles. And they're not really engaged in the rotation. I'm not going to entertain them. I'm not going to grab them. I'm not going to pick them up. I'm not going to show them things. Um, they don't want to learn. I'm not going to invest any time into them. So that's why I say it's in really, really important to ask questions. And I even t- say this to the students. You ask me questions or I'll ask you questions. And I can guarantee you the questions I ask, you won't have an answer for them. <laughs> <laughs> so it's better for you to ask me than for me to ask you. <laughs> That's a scary thought for sure, is, you know, <laughs> sitting in an empty room with just you and your questions. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be uh, thinking of some questions real quick after that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, so speaking about being a preceptor and, and getting into more of the education side of things, you know, uh, I have a guess in terms of, you know, this wasn't always something that you planned for, similar to your career in medicine. Was teaching something that you kind of stumbled into, or were you always drawn to it? Uh, so I, I, when I was an EMT, my crew chief was the respiratory therapist. He was also the CPR instructor, and every month we would teach CPR to the community. And so he mentored me, encouraged me to uh, become a CPR instructor, and so I was really intimidated. Uh, I didn't like standing up in front of crowds. I was not confident, uh, but he forced me to teach CPR. So, so you know, I, I didn't like doing the lecture parts, but I liked doing the skill stations. Mm-hmm. Um, but essentially, I did all, all different aspects of it, and it, it gained, gave me that confidence uh, that I needed. And then when I got to Quinnipiac and was in the respiratory therapy program, at the time, Ron Beckett uh, was our director. He said, well, can you teach all the respiratory therapists CPR? And so then I ended up teaching all the, the four years of respiratory therapy while I was there teaching uh, CPR there. And I think that that's probably where my teaching background came from. Um, but then when I was in PA school, we had did a lot of uh, oral presentations, and I just started to feel more comfortable. As I felt more comfortable with the information, uh, I started to feel more comfortable uh, presenting. Mm-hmm. And so I still, in certain environments, get nervous. I've spoken on, you know, internationally, nationally. Um, and there are definitely times when you get nervous. Um, and I think it's because of your audience. Like, if I'm confident in the topic, I'm confident talking. But there's always, you know, when you speak at these big conferences, there's probably people in the audience that know more more than you about <laughs> the topic you're talking about. So which always can be a little bit intimidating. I feel like that's me on, on every clinical. I, <laughs> I go to give the oral presentation. I'm looking at my preceptor attending. And I'm like, they just know more than I do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm like, please don't ask me anything after this. <laughs> this is the base of my knowledge. <laughs> so, and the reason why they ask you is because they want you to learn. Yeah. So all that, the, you know, all that pimping. Mm-hmm. Like it's good to have – so as a student, when you're on rotation – and you have someone that's pimping you all day long, that means that 
they don't want, it, it's not because they want to get you frustrated it's not because they want to get you angry uh, it's because they're they want to invest time into you that whole pimping is to find out what you know what you don't know stimulate that curiosity you know give you some of that knowledge that in areas where you where you didn't know but also say well, you know look that one up or look this one up um, so that it forces you to go back to the books mm-hmm. uh, now ideally you would do that on your own without being asked well, a lot of times it's uh, it's about being asked. And when they ask you, they're going to bring it up again the next day. So if you're on rotation and they say, look this up, look it up because they're going to ask you. And if you don't have that answer, you're going to look like a fool. Mm-hmm. So no matter how tired you are, no matter how many papers you have to write, presentations you have to prepare for, EOR exams are coming up, spend a half hour, hour, write down a couple notes, look it up, even if you don't know it all. Uh, it shows that you put the effort in, and, and that makes a, a big difference. Now, typically, when they do tell you to look it up, it's because they don't know either. <laughs> <laughs> I found that out. <laughs> that was the, the from behind the uh, the curtain, the, the preceptor's answer there. <laughs> <laughs> Not always, but that's, uh, you, that comes uh, across a lot. <laughs> one uh, one phrase that you, you've told us before that I, I actually still try to apply to every time is, most of the time when I am pimped on a question, I don't know. But instead of saying, I don't know, I say, I don't know yet. Yeah. And then I try to take the effort kind of, uh, of trying to initiate and f- figure out, figure out those answers if, if they don't tell me right off the spot. So, yeah. And if they, you know, a lot of times they'll say, look it up and we'll talk about it tomorrow. But if you have time during that day, don't wait till tomorrow, mm-hmm. like look it up that day and say, and, and that saves you to have to talk about it the next day, but also gives an opportunity to learn something new the following day. Because you get that one out of the way, and now you got something new to learn. That, that a- absolutely. Yeah, no procrastinating. Put the effort <laughs> yeah. in. You have a clinical year. It's 2,000 hours. You can invest a lot of effort into it. And, s- and some people say the clinical year, oh, it's so much easier because there's, you, know, you don't have exams. But in reality, the clinical year should be harder for you um, because you not only go to clinical from, you know, whatever, 7 in the morning to 5 o'clock, but then you have to study on top of that. Every six weeks, you got to start over again, right? So you got to make a first impression every six yeah. weeks, um, and then by the time you feel comfortable, you're starting over again. So you and you're constantly learning different subjects. So you got to open new books and uh, and learn new material, uh, and that could be really challenging uh, if you take it seriously. As somebody living off of three graham crackers right now, <laughs> I, I completely agree with that statement. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's not easier by any means. It's different. I think that's yeah. the only way you could ever explain it. Um, but looking at more of the type of student that, you know, you precept, we got into a little bit, and I think, you know, from what you've explained is it seems like it's a, a much bigger attitude, uh, you know, kind of thing than it is about general medical knowledge or, or anything like that. Um, so if you had uh, if you had David as your your clinical student, what would <laughs> what would you want him to do on the first day? What what would it be? You know, asking those questions and things like that. I think in the beginning, just show up and be professional. That's it. Uh, we're not asking for a lot. You're not the first student to come through here. You're not the last. Uh, we know what to expect, uh, especially in coming in and doing an elective in critical care. Basically, nothing that you learn in PA school is going to prepare you for your critical care rotation. Uh, you know, uh, sepsis resuscitation and uh, massive transfusion protocols and uh, mechanical ventilation. I think those are things that you, you maybe got a taste of it, but you're nowhere near being uh, proficient 
uh, or competent in those areas. And so our expectation is not that, you're, that you know that. Our expectation is that you're going to look it up, you're going to ask questions, um, and that's really important. Yeah, it, it sounds to me more like you want somebody that wants to be there really at the end of the day. It, that's more important than somebody who's just like very passive about it, who shows up and is just like, ah, I'm here. I, I want the name, the title, whatever. Yeah, teach but, me. <laughs> yeah, teach me. Come on. I'm just sitting here. And, that, and that's, you know, in terms of preceptors like you were talking before, being a preceptor in most instances is voluntary. People decide to become preceptors because they want to teach. They want to give back to the next generation of PAs. They like that. They like seeing students grow. Um, and so they do it because they want to do it. You don't get paid for it. It actually takes away from your productivity. And a lot of times now in the hospital, you get reimbursed based on your productivity. Uh, we're also extremely overwhelmed and short-staffed. So um, for a preceptor to go out of their way and teach you, uh, it means that they really want to do it. So if you're not doing a good job, um, they're probably not going to give you a lot of uh, a lot of uh, of their effort. So, be motivated, enthusiastic, engaged, ask questions. Yeah, and I I think what you say, you know, it it transcends just critical care, right? I think that's a mentality that you can bring to any rotation, you know, whether or not it's a elective in orthopedic surgery or in dermatology. I think you know any preceptor, if you walk in the door and you're just excited to be there and excited to learn. Uh, it, it makes it a much easier process for, for both parties, the student and the preceptor. And just to give you a couple like uh, examples, like when I was on my OB rotation, uh, I knew that this week we we're going to be talking about contraception. So I went on Medscape, right, H looked up contraception. I mean, now you could probably do it on up-to-date, look at all the contraception that's out there. Um, you could look at journal articles on contraception. You could see, like, what is coming down the pike. And so I would read that, and then when it came time to have the discussion on contraception, I knew all the basics, right? Not only that, but I was asking questions from, like, the latest journal article that came out on contraception. It, like, they wanted to put me into the residency program. <laughs> 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 but it's those simple little things. It, it doesn't take a lot of effort. It's just going out of your way, uh, 10, 20 minutes, half hour, just to, and that's that clinical curiosity that you have for that. You know, I, I really want to be prepared for when we have this discussion so that I can not only prepare myself to learn, but also prepare questions ahead of time to, to sort of look good. Yeah. And so that plays into our, our next question a little bit in terms of, you know, how can you as a student make the best possible first impression, right? So it's that, you know, you, you mentioned it before, it's always changing your, every six weeks, you're stepping into a new environment, new people, and you have to make that, that first impression again. And it's something that causes a lot of people uh, worry, or it may be generally hard for some people. Uh, how might you advise students to, to go about it? Um, so again, be professional, come in early. If you don't know how long it's gonna take you to get to your rotation, then leave an hour before you think you need to come and sit in the parking lot for an hour and study. But do not show up to the rotation late. Um, show up earlier before your preceptor if you could. Stay late. Ask if you can help with things. And also have some emotional intelligence. Like if you see that every day in the morning, we grab the charts when we start rounding. If you go and grab the charts ahead of time, you're like, wow, they're really perceptive. Like they're, they're seeing what the workflow is like and they're trying to be helpful 
not saying, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? But you're actually seeing what needs to be done, and you're going, being proactive and actually doing it. Like, those little things are make a difference. It makes It's that extra 10%. It's not showing up and, and being a you know, nice person. It's those extra, it's that extra 10% that puts you above other, other people. The other thing that's really important, it goes along with emotional intelligence, is don't get caught up in all the politics on the rotation. You're going to hear everyone right now, especially, is really stressed, you know, under a lot of pressure, um, you know, burned out, whatever you want to call it. Um, and they're bickering, they're complaining, they're arguing, they're frustrated. And it's very easy to get caught up in that. Uh, you have some students who sort of get right up in there and start bickering and complaining. Uh, do not do that. Um, at, you know, a lot of times after we, you know, there's be some person that's really complaining a lot. Um, I'll even say it to them. Like, you can't be this unprofessional in front of the students. Um, but it happens all the time. Um, but as a student, do not get caught up in that. Just keep your mouth shut, pretend it never happened, <laughs> and ask a lot of questions. <laughs> it's, it's interesting. You, you point out all these things, and none of them come back to, like, medical knowledge or or how you are as a like uh you know in the clinical setting it's it's more about your personality and just how you 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 know address these situations uh so you know i think for anyone out there you know maybe thinking more about the soft skills rather than your your hard rock solid you know medical knowledge may be beneficial for for making that first impression yeah for sure i mean a lot of times the number one didactic student best grades doesn't make the best uh clinical um student and doesn't make the best um doesn't make the best uh p a so uh even if you're not the smartest person in the class, you could still make a really really good provider if not the best provider yeah no i i uh i think those are some really really strong points um kind of transitioning to here like you you know as a preceptor you've you've over time especially if you know accumulated certain skill sets and things that have made you feel uh like you're able to better teach maybe students about certain tasks or skills or procedures or in your case you even st started out teaching people how to do cpr um how do you try to like teach this sort of stuff on, on your rotations how do you how do you go about teaching really so yeah we teach, uh, we have resident, so we have medical students, we have PA students, we have nurse practitioner students, we have residents, uh, interns, and um, so I receive a lot of enjoyment out of seeing people grow, and uh, if they ever got rid of the, rid of the residency uh, rotation in our ICU, I would, I would probably not work there anymore. I'd go someplace where there was some ability for me to teach, uh, and I do it for myself. <laughs> I get a lot of satisfaction out of seeing people grow. Now, this is going back to, you know, the year uh, 2001 when we presented uh, the tracheostomies as done by PAs at the SCCM conference. The moderator said, you know, it's a room or like a group of, of uh, doctors, physicians, and they said, well, how would you feel? Would you feel comfortable with your PAs performing tracheostomies in your ICU? And uh, someone said, well, I don't think, you know, that's really, it's uh, beyond their scope and whatnot. And one guy, he said, and this has stuck with me, uh, the only reason why you feel, you feel uncomfortable having, having a PA do that is because you're not comfortable yourself doing that procedure. But if you were comfortable doing that procedure, you would feel comfortable 
them performing that procedure. Mm. And that's how I, f that's how I sort of feel now having the experience, I sort of feel the same way. I could take a student who's never seen a central line kit and I could hand them piece by piece, hand them every piece, and they, I could walk them through a successful central line placement b even though you haven't done it before because I've just done it so many times. I know how to get you out of problems. I know how to prevent problems. Um, you know, it might take an extra few minutes to do it, but it's, it's not rocket science. And, and that, you know, that stuck with me. It's like if you're comfortable doing it, you're, you're comfortable with someone else doing it. That's uh, that's amazing. Is I recently just watched a central line be be placed, and thinking that you know, if someone tossed me the kit and said, "Hey, do you know what this is?" I said, "No." And they <laughs> said, "Put it in." I would be in in shock if I got it done. Yeah, we but. actually had uh, one of our newer PAs at the time. We went down to the trauma room to to help with a patient that was hypotensive, and I brought down one of the new PAs who just came off orientation, and then had a student with me. So we don't have ultrasound down there. So I said to the, our recent hire, I said, hey, you want to do this central line blind without ultrasound guidance? She's like, no. I said, oh, come on, I'll walk you through it. Like, not a big deal. And she's like, no, no, I just I don't want to feel comfortable with that. So I said, okay, Heather, come over here. <laughs> I said, got gowned up. <laughs> <laughs> Took Heather through it. She's never done a central line before. And uh, she successfully did a blind central line placement. So uh -huh. it, it's just uh, a matter of, uh, again, you, I think as you feel more comfortable, you could be a better teacher. Yeah. It's almost a level of like confidence in your own ability and kind of, uh, you know, pushing that onto the student a bit. And I'm sure from from a student's perspective, that's incredibly empowering as well, knowing that your your preceptor is there to guide you and, and has, you know, all the confidence in you in the world. And setting you up for success. Like you don't want your procedure to be a failure. So you could take a student through it. I mean, if it's going to be a really difficult line. Patients, uh, you know, on dialysis, they had 13 central lines placed in the past. Like, that's not the one who you want to practice on. Uh, <laughs> or the patient's unstable and shock and they have no blood pressure. That's not the one that I'm going to take the student through. But when you have a patient who's relatively stable and you have an opportunity, definitely, uh, you know, take advantage of that opportunity. Yeah, I mean, it even kind of goes back to me trying to place an IV uh, you know, <laughs> to a uh, lesser extent. You know, you have uh, a nurse in my case was walking me through it. They've placed so many, I like, you know, when, when I hear somebody's request, like a doctor or somebody yeah. to place an IV, I'm like, you, you want the nurse. Trust <laughs> me. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah. Because I've done it so many times. I feel so comfortable. They just talk me through the entire procedure. If something happens badly, they know, they know every every complication that could happen with it. They know how to get out of those complications, and I think that's actually a really awesome way to learn as a, as a student is by by attempting to do something that might be out of your comfort zone, but you have a preceptor where it's comfortable for them. Yeah. So. If you want an IV, get it done by a nurse. If you want a central line, get it done by <laughs> Professor Sanders' student. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you got it. <laughs> uh, but talking a little bit more, and this might be our last question, um, about the end of clinical year and graduation, uh, a lot of students, PA students, it's you know a short 24, 27-month period that you're expected to learn all of this medicine, and then you graduate and you take your boards uh, and you get your first job. Uh, you may not feel ready, 
and I think that's pretty understandable. Uh, <coughs> but what would be maybe your kind of wise words uh, for some of those students that are uh, approaching graduation, may not feel fully comfortable 100% uh, in medicine yet? Yeah, so this is, uh, this is uh, the whole talk is my opinion, basically. So uh, it's not, my, some people might disagree with me along the way, and which is fine. Um, so preparing for your first job, PA school's not meant to, you don't graduate PA school ready to practice. You're given an experience, 2,000 hours of clinical experience and seven specialties and two electives. You're not expected to be an expert in any one of those fields when you graduate. You just got a taste, and now it's your opportunity to learn. You got the ticket to learn. And so you really need to recognize that and continue to learn. And for me, 20 years out, I hate to say that, um, but <laughs> I, I still learn every single day. And some of the things I'm learning are things that I forgot. And medicine is very humbling because I, I know the right answer. And then I have a resident or a student or someone say, well, no, this is what I, this is the right answer. And I'd be like, all right, let's look it up. And uh, sometimes I'm right, sometimes I'm wrong. But that's humbling. Medicine is humbling. It changes very quickly. And if you happen to open the book and read that before I had a chance to read it, doesn't mean that I'm stupid or you're stupid. just means that you, you know that, that bit of information better than I do. And, and you'll come across that all the time. And so there's no sense in arguing. Uh, let's look it up and find the right answer. So anyway, back to graduation. Yeah, you're not going to know much when you graduate. <laughs> um, That's comforting. Yeah. <laughs> but I can guarantee you that Quinnipiac will prepare you for clinical practice as best as possible and probably better than most programs. Uh, your clinical experience is, your didactic experience is amazing. Your clinical experience is amazing. And, um, and we really make, we, we, don't prepare you to take the NCCPA exam. Uh, we prepare you to be a competent PA. And, and if you put the effort in to grow, you're going to be in great shoes. Now, when you graduate, everyone brags about their salaries, right? It's not about the salary. Your first job should not be about the salary at all. Even if you're making significantly less than one, another one of your classmates, it's perfectly fine. As long as you get a job, that um, gives you a good onboarding experience um, because there's nothing worse than you graduating, making $130,000 a year and being dropped into a fire. And it's going to set you up for failure. You know, gain that experience and don't just take the job with a low salary, gain the experience and leave. Stay and grow. You know, I hear a lot of people say, oh, I, I, I want to be a PA. And this is during the interview process, you know, for PA school as well. It's like, why do you want to be a PA? Oh, the lateral mobility. I could be a neurosurgeon and a pediatric uh, oncologist at the same time. I just, I could do anything I want, <laughs> right? And the, the truth is, you can't, <laughs> right? In order, to, in order to do, be good at being a PA, you need to choose something and stick with it for a long time. And you might not realize this until you're done, you graduated, or you have three years of experience, but it's gonna take you three years of experience in one clinical setting, uh, dedicated experience uh, in that clinical setting to get to a point where you're comfortable. You know, you're gonna graduate and you're gonna go in and be like, okay, what questions do I need to ask? Uh, am I asking all these? Did I do the right uh, review systems? Uh, my note writing is too long or too short. Um, you know, I'm spending too much time with this patient. 
and the patient sitting in front of you, like, hello, um, until you get to the point where you walk in the room and you say, you have that compassion, you see the patient, you take care of the patient, don't worry, I'll take care of you, I'm going to help you, we're going to get through this, right? That's when you are a provider, and that's, that's not day one, that's going to take years to accomplish. So when you say I want to, or you want to say, well, I want to do a couple of years of primary care and urgent care so I can get, you know, get my foundation strong, and then I'm going to do orthopedics after that. Well, if you want to do orthopedics, then just do orthopedics. Be good at something. That's mm-hmm. all you need to do is dedicate your career to being good at one thing, and then you're going to be relied upon. You're going to be trusted. Um, and there's times, you know, I've been doing this for 20 years. Again, we talk about research. You know, join your professional organization. Uh, for me, it's a Society of Critical Care Medicine. Get involved. You know, initially you, you need some mentorship, but you'll grow into that role. And it took me a while to get involved in the Society of Critical Care Medicine. Again, it's intimidating. Um, but you know, now I'm president of the PA section of the Society of Critical Care Medicine. I've accomplished a lot during my two-year term. I've met a lot of people. I've mentored a tremendous amount of people, encouraged them to, to get involved in, in um in, um, in, in SCCM. Uh, and also, that offered me the opportunity to, uh, to be inducted as a fellow in the American College of Critical Care Medicine, which is something that's like a, uh, one of the hardest things to do in your career. So physicians have an extremely hard time getting into the American College of Critical Care Medicine. PAs, it's nearly impossible. There's 13, maybe 15 now in the entire world, PAs that are, are inducted into f- as fellows in the American College of Critical Care Medicine. And it's because of my dedication. Now, how many of my, pre- my supervising physicians have that designation? One. So it, it, um, it really gives you an opportunity. It's not about the, you know, I'm a PA and you're a doctor or you're a physician. We are team, team players. We work together. Sometimes they'll call me up and say, hey, what do you think we should do here? Right? And it's that relationship that you want to develop. And if you have two different jobs working in pediatric oncology and neurosurgery, you're never going to be good at anything. You'll be a, a jack of all trades and a master of none. And in which case, you're never going to have that autonomy, the respect. Um, so you really want to... Um, you know, focus on one thing and be good at one thing, and you're going to have a tremendous amount of satisfaction in that, and you're going to be invaluable. Um, they'll give you more and more opportunities uh, as you grow. Yeah, uh, that that's, <laughs> that's that's really good stuff. I mean, what I, I kind of want to follow up with one other question to that because I hear this a lot too: is a lot of students are reluctant to go into a specialty right out of graduation because they're afraid they're pigeonholing themselves into that specialty and when 10 years come up they don't know anything about anything else what would you say to somebody like that so if you spend 10 years in a specialty you're probably going to spend the next 10 years in that specialty (laughs) (laughs) and then you're going to spend the next 10 years in that specialty if you if you dedicated that much of your life to being good at something why would you not want to be continue to be good at it and it's not even work anymore like in the beginning, you're stressed out. You show up, you're stressed out. Hope this doesn't show up. I'm not prepared for this. I'm not prepared for that. But imagine coming to work every day and saying, bring it on, <laughs> right? It's like <laughs> yeah. the sickest patient comes in, everyone's freaking out. And you're just like, we'll take care of it. It's like second nature. And it's like, it's such a sense of 
uh, satisfaction when you have someone who comes in and everyone's freaking out and scared and nervous. The family is upset. What's going on? And things aren't going the right way. And then you come in and you say, don't worry. I'll take care of it. Everything's going to be okay. You know, you're sick and, you know, but we, we'll figure out what's going on and we'll get you better. Mm. Like th- that satisfaction is, is like unbe- unbelievable. So why change and go into, and you'll see that if you do ENT, you'll see that if you go orthopedics, you'll see that if in any specialty that you go into is when you're good at something, it's no longer work. It's just making people better. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. That's awesome. I have <laughs> this weird feeling of, of quasi confidence, but also nervousness. Cause I just got told the next three years of my life are going to not be comfortable. <laughs> <laughs> well, medicine is, um, you're always practicing medicine. The reason why you're always practicing because you're you're never really good at it. <laughs> so you just get better with time, but you're always really practicing, and and it takes a lifetime to continue to grow. Uh, you know, medicine changes frequently. Uh, you got to keep up on things, and um, you know it's getting more and more specialized as we as we go. So you know, you know, in the beginning, uh, you know, primary care provider would handle everything cardiology everything nephrology everything endocrinology now you, you got diabetes you got hypothyroid well we'll send you a specialist because there's eight different types of hypothyroid now or there's <laughs> three different types of diabetes and there's 18 different new meds that i don't even know how they work so it's like everything is getting so specialized that you're gonna pigeonhole yourself in one way or another but just be good at what you uh what you enjoy to do yeah some powerful words there's a, this has been such a great conversation. I mean, you know, refreshing to to just be able to talk about medicine clinical year and a little a little scary and daunting to know <laughs> that the future ahead isn't going to just be a cakewalk either. But also also good because that's what makes a good provider is the, those challenges. So um, with that, uh, I would really just want to take a, a quick moment and thank you so much for for joining us on this episode. Uh, really appreciate your input and insight. That's my pleasure. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, if anybody has any, uh, uh, wants to come check us out on Instagram, we are there. We are at Short White Coat Syndrome. Uh, you can also go to uh, shortwhitecoatsyndrome at gmail.com. Uh, you can just send us an email for any questions, comments, or concerns. Um, again, this is a production of the Quinnipiac Podcast Studio, and remember to keep breathing. Keep breathing.